of socio-political issues. One man searches for intelligent conversation. From Dedham, Massachusetts, the birthplace of modern democracy, this is You Don't Have to Yell with your host, Dan Sally. Welcome to episode 31 of You Don't Have to Yell, lucky number 31 and the number one episode in the number three month of the year. I will let all you numerology freaks simmer on that one. Now, during January's conversation around the national debt and February's conversation around racial justice, one thing became clear. Education can do a lot of good in both ensuring a dynamic and productive economy and rectifying racial disparities in income. So this month, we're going to be looking into education in America. Where are we? How did we get here? And where do we need to go? Now, for our first stop, we're going to take a look at the South following the Civil War, a period that was called the Second Founding of America, where we had a second chance to rectify the issues of slavery and create a more perfect society. And surprise, surprise, a lot of good actually happened, which included the founding of public schools for children of all races, a jump in the rate of literacy, and an increase in income. Until, of course, an economic crisis hits and everything gets terrible again. But we're going to kind of gloss over that for now. Because there are some good lessons to be learned in all this. And that is why I invited Hillary Green, professor of history at the University of Alabama and author of Educational Reconstruction, African-American Schools in the Urban South, 1865 to 1890, to join me and discuss. I'll be back at the end with closing comments. What prompted me to reach out, as you know, was... As I was doing research into the, the state of public education in the U.S. And, and doing research on the history of public education in the U.S., the education reform done during the Reconstruction pops out as one of the most pivotal moments in the course of public education. Is that the right perspective on it? I mean, it seems like it was, it, it's had repercussions that extend into today. Is that correct? I would agree. Reconstruction is a unique period. And in fact, I would say education, when we talk about that era, is one of the most clear successes of Mm. the period because of the changes changed uh, made there in the expansion of education to include all citizens, regardless of race and gender and class. And the structures that we think of as the modern-day public schools really have their birthplace in that era, more so than in the 1830s and 40s and other areas. It's that period that has shaped um, education more broadly. Okay. Okay. And so maybe to set the stage then, can you describe what the state of education in the South was prior to the Civil War? Prior to the Civil War, unless you were in a more major city like New Orleans, Mobile, and a couple of handful other places, it, public education was non-existent. Mm-hmm. Uh, Southern white elite, oftentimes male, but occasionally women in private academies would attend um, these institutions. And they were pretty much training the elite of the elite to become lawyers, doctors, and the like. Um, People who were orphans sometimes might be with religious organizations, but it wasn't seen as a priority because of the power structures. It was seen that 
why if you're poor and you're going to be a farmer why do you need to know how to read and write and this should not be a public burden so uh, there's in the case of alabama mobile has public schools but for white children and creole colored children only not for african-americans and even then going to school was seen as a luxury because if you're not if you are in school as a child you are not contributing to the family income and everyone needed to work to survive so it wasn't seen as something that people did so in terms of the south it was non-existent except for a few okay okay and now during the civil war Mm -hmm. it seems like any education sort of ground to a halt so effectively, whether if you were privileged enough to have been educated prior to the war starting, that was kind of put on pause during the during wartime. Is that right? Exactly. Um, so I'm at an institution that chose to stay open um, mm-hmm. during the Civil War, but its student population went to war. So if yeah. you're super at war, you can't um, serve. But one of the things that the war did, though, it became it becomes an opportunity for white women to mm-hmm. go to school. Because elite white women who are refugee and school districts don't want to shut down, so they offer it, and you see this brief expansion of education to women's education. Uh, but the war stopped everything, and even in public areas like Mobile and other um, cities that had schools, they are closed. But so the war shifts everything; it opens up some opportunity for women. But other than that, it's pretty much it's stopped. The amazing thing and the amazing trend I find in U.S. history so far that's, that's probably f- stuck out to me the most is our ability to do the right thing by accident. And I think the education of women there is just another one of those things where, where they, it's effectively like in that instance, they kind of just needed to fill seats. And so they opened it up to women who weren't out there fighting. Is that right? Exactly. And that's, it's one of those things you're just like, oh, this accidental gain. Yeah, I know. (laughs) Hey, that (laughs) that was nice, huh? Um, So, okay. So they, so Civil War ends and there's pretty much like my understanding, there's pretty much a blank slate to build this from the ground up. And, and so during the reconstruction effort, you know, my understanding is the union comes in and well, the first thing they start doing is collecting taxes. So that was a very interesting fact to find out. I think it was, I think it was something like a week after the Civil War ended, there were already tax collectors on the ground in every major uh, city in the South. Um, but but they also come in and they 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 really make education a priority. Is that is that right? And can you tell talk a little bit about sort of what their mission was and and what they built in that during those years? Yeah, and this is where I think one of the things that's also driving this um, federal forces coming in and really setting up education has to do with the 4 million emancipated African Americans and this question of how are we going to make the nation going to make the transition from slavery to freedom mm-hmm. and, and where federal forces coming in with the largest philanthropy ever when you look at the numbers it's not just taxes it's how much money comes in from overseas london paris but also the northeast west and midwest to deal with this population of people and uh, also too uh, over in its history from 60, 1865 to 1876 over 11,000 teachers come to teach in the south mm-hmm. 
So you have this federal apparatus to deal with these newly emancipated African-Americans. And from the beginning, they demanded education because under slavery, to, um, to difference between slavery and freedom was access to literacy. Mm-hmm. And during slavery, it was illegal to educate African-Americans. So even when these public schools are created, it's for white children and a few creoles of color, but that's it. It's this divide, this racial divide. So African-Americans are also pushing for our schools and contributing their funding to their and taxes and willing to pay taxes. So you have in that first two and a half years, schools are everywhere. Those taxes that are a little bit collected, they're not really city taxes for the funding of education more broadly. It's to reopen the schools that were existing before. Mm-hmm. But one of the things that happens is a demand that education is a right for everyone after the Civil War, regardless of race and previous status. And it's a combination of Freedmen's Bureau schools that get created, mm-hmm. these outside teachers that come down to the South to teach, but also those who manage to, as we say, for those African-Americans in the South, because it was illegal, stole their education, mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> um, becoming teachers. And those initial ones in there, that energy becomes where they're like, oh, maybe we should fund this yeah. and make this into a possibility. So in 1867, when Congress takes over Reconstruction from Andrew Johnson, they pass what's called the Reconstruction Acts of 1867. These three acts set up the process for Southern states who are part of the Confederacy to return to the United States. One of the things they required was drafting new state constitutions. And in that, that energy that was being there from 1863, if you're in Virginia, to like Alabama, 1865 forward to 67, that becomes, okay, maybe we should have public schools for everyone. So it's that two and a half years, part of the end of the war into the first two years after the war, that energy around schools, the funding being there, that convinces people public education is, should be a right for all. And it's drive, It's being driven not by previous white Southerners. This is where African-Americans in particular, and even um, those who were outside of the public schools before, um, poor whites, um, and also white individuals living in the country um, not, and not in a town, who always wanted education and were denied, actually agreed that like, maybe we should have this. And okay. that's where you start to see those new constitutions where that is where those taxes and everything else and why we think of this system from being only a few mm-hmm. to one by, defined by race to one that everyone is a state right, funded by taxes, supported by a state bureaucracy matters. Well, so it's a short window. Yeah, and that's what I found really interesting is if you look, like I, I think it was the state constitution of Mississippi, state constitution of Florida. From an education standpoint, they, they actually had some very progressive ideas for the time, it seems. Yes, and it's across the board. And it's not just, so um, one of the things I did um, do in my work is I surveyed all those state constitutions. So I tell people, like, if you want to see where public schools began, start there. Okay. <laughs> look at those constitutions. Mm-hmm. And look at those, um, that they're actual articles. So they all agree on the same principle across from Mississippi to Florida to even Arkansas to Alabama. In the first or second one, 
public education will be for all children. And they always give an age between 5 and 21 (laughs) because uh, there's some older children in the system who need to be educated who were denied previously. Okay. And then the other thing is they will all establish, okay, who's going to be in charge of this new system? So you have to create a whole new state department and then taxes to pay for that. Mm-hmm. And then the last um, issue is who's going to teach in these schools? You see the creation of what are called normal programs. Those are teacher training schools. So you'll start seeing like, okay, let's have a pipeline of teachers that get developed too. So you'll start seeing those commonalities between all of the school districts um, across the states. One thing that's interesting in those new constitutions though that will have later repercussions is some states like Florida, um, Mississippi, and others start to have how a minimum school year length put in. Mm-hmm. Some states as low as three months. Okay. Other states will put five or six months. So what happens is, and these constitutions are fairly progressive, if you're in a rural county with no money, no students, if you say, I'm, I'm only going to provide three months of education, you're still within the law. But what can you learn in three months? Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I'm sure the kids yeah. loved it, but. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No. So it, you start to see these diversity, but one of the things that all of them will start to say is education is a state right. And also for a child. As a child, you are, you are, this is what citizenship means, the right to go to school. We didn't have that before. So we actually define what childhood is. And for African-American children, those who had to work, mm-hmm. that's a major progressive expansion of just that right to go to school as expressive of that right of citizenship. My hometown of Dedham, Massachusetts, mm-hmm. claims to be the first publicly funded school system in the United States. But as with most things, Boston, there's for the folks listening who aren't from Boston, pretty much there's a town that claims to be the origin of everything here. And (laughs) that's our claim to fame, but you've just taken us down a peg here, Hillary. So I'll, uh, (laughs) as a native Bostonian, I, I, I'm sorry, (laughs) (laughs) that's all right. We'll still let you back. Um, so, okay. So, it, there's one thing I want to jump back to here that you mentioned is, you know, you mentioned all this money's coming in from like overseas and from the Northwest and the Midwest. What was the motivation behind sending that money to the South? This is really what I call when the, once slavery's over uh-huh. is a kind of an atonement. Okay. We didn't do enough to end the institution of slavery. It took a four year violent um, high casualty war um, to end it, and also to African American soldiers were instrumental in that fight. Mm-hmm. So, how we as a nation move forward um, and bring back the nation, but also recognize with slavery over what, like their citizens too, what happens right. with them. And I think one of the things is it's kind of that. Maybe we didn't do enough here, but we can do something with the aftermath. Got it. And the, the other thing is, too, why I think money is coming in, and it's also employment issues. This is the South in the Reconstruction 
uh, set in is like the number one destination for economic growth because they have to rebuild everything from the ground up, from the cities that were destroyed, like Richmond, you see the rubble, to the train lines and the other, and also to the building of society. So everything needs to be rebuilt. Mm-hmm. Let's start here and have a clean slate and build the America that was promised early on but not fulfilled. Let's, um, as Greg Downs calls it, the second founding of, and Eric found it about the second founding of America. This was that, let's bring back in what we should have done. Okay. Okay. That's a very interesting altruistic light point in American history that I just want to pause and enjoy for just a brief moment. Um, I think this is actually a good point for that pause. <laughs> so we're, we're going to pause for a quick break. We'll be back with Hillary Green in just a moment. Hey there. Hope you're enjoying this episode and wanted to take a short break for a quick message from yours truly, Dan Sally. Now, I launched this podcast after getting tired of the political dialogue being dominated either by two people who disagree talking over each other or, worse yet, one hyperpartisan big mouth whose sole purpose was to get people angry. And I felt there were people out there like me who were sick of the chicken or beef menu were given in American politics and wanted something else. Maybe fish, vegetarian, I don't judge. At any rate, we're over halfway through the year, and I'm happy to say that I was right. As the big Gino and I have watched the audience grow, I've also heard from many of you, and it's kept me going through what can be a grueling and mundane process at times. Ask the big Gino. He has to edit out all my odds and ums. So... With that, I'm going to ask you to do one thing to help us get the word out to more people. Take a look right now on the device you're listening to, and there should be an option to share this episode. You see it? Okay. Go ahead, click it, and help me get the word out to your friends on Facebook and Twitter. That's it. Extra credit, go and tell one friend, but I'm not going to make you go that far. We can't change the political dialogue in America without more people like you So helping me get the word out is a great first step. And now, back to the show. Prior to the break, we were talking about how the Reconstruction era was really viewed as a point in time where we could build a new and better society from the ground up. And there were a lot of things that went into that, but one part of that was really investing in education. And a lot of money is coming in from overseas, from other parts of the country, There are uh, teachers moving down there, education's written into the state constitution, they're developing funding mechanisms. And and that all seems to be going along fine. Now, after the founding, what what were some of the outcomes that that came out of that investment? One of the things that um, I see as the outcomes is this is where there's four things. First is that bureaucracy that gets created. So now we have a Bureau of Public Instruction, uh, we have county level, city level, school officials um, who are on the school board. So we have all of that system okay. <laughs> that get, has to get generated. And they produce annual reports and they're documenting everything, including how is the money being spent. Mm-hmm. The second thing is, this is where we will see the training of what I call um, teachers. And this core that are being trained in the states to teach in those states. So you can start in 
not all have kindergarten, so like primary grades, and go all the way up to become a teacher and then come back and be employed in your community or Mm -hmm. elsewhere. So this great investment of who's going to teach. So you start seeing the training of white and black um, teachers, largely women. This is where that highly feminized uh, profession of education will come into play. But they're all educated state employees Mm -hmm. who get pensions now. Okay. So you have this teacher class that's part of the middle class now. Firmly middle class, but they're in the classroom doing the work and then outside their communities doing community uplift and working outside. So they're always seeing their stuff as classroom and then out in their communities. Mm -hmm. The other is schools actually have to be created and built. So before the Rosenwald Fund, um, which is... um, one of the people from Sears in the 19, early 1900s that Booker T. Washington worked with in building schoolhouses across the world south. Mm-hmm. This is one of those periods where you have a mass construction of school buildings across the entire region. So where you had no schools, you actually have to build new schools. Mm-hmm. So you see construction prices and not building, but also the repairs. And these early schools that are built, um, especially in the cities, they're using for their models the Northeast. So they're two-story brick buildings. And it looks like if your teachers are coming from Malden, Massachusetts, or Chicago, some of the schools in those urban cities look the same. But if you're going to a rural community, those um, single-room um, schoolhouses that we commonly associate with the Midwest, that's starting to look like the design of those schools. But you actually have to build them. Mm-hmm. So we actually will see the number of seats and buildings for children seeking an education increase. Mm-hmm. And then the last is funding. Mm-hmm. While some school districts do better than others, you actually have line items by the state because mm-hmm. the state will collect taxes and give money to the schools. That's divided by race. So you'll have the colored fund and the white fund mm-hmm. for funding. Then you have county level funding for the schools. And you will have city funded. One of the things about the funding, though, it tends to be by use. Mm-hmm. How many school children are going to use this building? So it's by a not by a flat rate, and this government's going to give ten thousand dollars. Instead, it's like, okay, this is how much we give for student. You have more students attending, therefore you get money that way because you'll need it more. Mm-hmm. So it's by per student model, which is really great because. Um, after reconstruction, that's where you really see those fun and inequities that we think about. So it's fairly progressive mm-hmm. um, in terms of how it's funded and also, too, just the apparatus we think about public schools being created. It's done during this short period of time. So you have this per-pupil model of, of mm-hmm. allocating educa- education spending. Does that, how does that differ from maybe what was done before, and, and does that differ from how it's done today as well? One of the things, um, how it differs um, before, because if school districts didn't exist, mm-hmm. it was just, uh, so in the case of this, uh, Alabama that had state appropriations for schools in Mobile, they just gave Mobile a certain amount of money in no other district. Mm-hmm. So, okay. so if you're in one or two schools in that city, then you got all the funding. Mm-hmm. It didn't matter who used it, how many people used it. Is this this was here, um, but after the Civil War and the expansion, 
And this is one of the things that shocked me in my research and where you start seeing the difference. I was expecting black children will receive less money. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> I didn't see that. And in fact, um, I looked at the city of Richmond, Virginia. Mm-hmm. It is on par with a northern school district in terms of how much money it's given a year for schools. And the majority of that went to black education because they use the schools more than white children. I okay. would never expected the city of Richmond at, in 1890, um, when they first opened their schools in eight, public schools in 1870, after the Freedmen's Bureau leaves, they give both white and black schools $15,000 each. By the 1890, they're given almost $200,000 to schools. And <laughs> so I'm like, oh, you're in the top 100. I no am. other southern cities doing that, except for New Orleans. I know I sound like a broken record, but I am just continuously in awe of how surprisingly nice this story is so far. Um, so, so well, it, it's, it is one of those surprises. Like I, I'm a, not a triumphalist person. I'm not like, oh, this is great. But actually, when you see the dollar amount, you're like, wait a minute, what's going on? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> what you, is you, this? this is not what I'm taught. <laughs> this is not what I learned. <laughs> You had to double check your math. Uh, What's it, going on in this moment? Yeah. yeah. And so this funding source, so is it, all lo- is it all local in the sense that it's either state, county, or town, or are there federal dollars coming in here as well? You won't really, after, so when the Freedmen's Bureaus are there, before state public, uh, new state constitutions come in, mm-hmm. that's where you see federal dollars and philanthropists. Mm. Um, outside funding agencies like the American Missionary Association, the uh, American Baptist for Home Mission Society, but also out of New England, um, the um, Boston Group, um, Boston Educational uh, Society, um, where Storo Drive is around there, Soldier's Field, Soldier Field Road, that society gave a lot of money to education. So you have these philanthropies of former abolitionists and others who are sending teachers to also extra money to the South. So you have this coalition between federal and then um, private dollars. Once there are public schools, though, you have state dollars replace what federal was offering. Okay. And some communities still have those ties with those American Missionary Associations. They still have their tie there, so you still see some private money coming in. But most of the supplemental money that's not coming locally comes from the African-American communities and the communities themselves. So there's this thing we call the the double tax. African-Americans in particular in the South would give, when they needed a new school building, they would give their time and money if there was any shortfalls. Or they're like, we need a school. We only have this amount. We'll contribute more. So you start seeing that continuation, but heavily outside funders that oftentimes in partnership from those early schools moving forward, but the state taking more and more responsibility. Okay. Okay. So it's, so it sounds to me then like this is really, you know, after a certain period, this is all kind of locally promoted or locally grown then. Yes, uh, it is. Okay. Okay. So now in terms of like educational outcomes, then are there any statistics on maybe how it improved literacy or any economic benefits or anything like that? 
Yeah, so before the Civil War among African Americans in particular, you're talking less than 4% across the nation who were literate. By the 1870 um, census, that has jumped to 60% and keeps on growing. So the <laughs> increased literacy keeps on growing up. Um, so, and most of that is out of those southern states. Post-Freedmen's uh, post Bureau schools, post-public schools, so you just see continued growth in those areas. Okay. And then in terms of income, um, this is where I look at why this success really, uh, why education was at the core of Reconstruction. In this transition from slavery to freedom, you see the expansion of job opportunities and social mobility based on if you're literate and educated. So those who attain public school education, whether they go through primary grades or all the way up to become teachers and go into HBCUs, you start to see the establishment of, even in the white community too, a larger middle class being formed. Okay. And in that middle class area, the difference between that and non-middle class and working poor, I would say, is how much education you have. Mm -hmm. Do you live in a city or not? Um, and in particular, um, or if you don't live in a city, do you have land? So, but you see increased numbers. So you see more people with higher incomes who are able to then do what we think of leisure and travel and different things too. Okay. So you start seeing more diversification of class after the Civil War, but the biggest thing is education. Do you have it? Were you educated or not? Was the biggest factor. And do these? Do the economic benefits? Are they across? Do they cross racial lines, or is there an equity, for example, between white and African American in terms of? It definitely crosses racial lines, and in some instances, um, especially in the urban South, um, you start to see African Americans who really desired education and were the first ones to embrace it actually mm -hmm. outpacing some of their white neighbors. So you will see um, African-Americans who were formerly enslaved rise all the way up to the ranks of being presidents of institutions or becoming politicians and drawing incomes. Or in the case of um, Richmond that I'm familiar with, Maggie Lena Walker, for instance, she was um, she was in the schools that I researched and talked about, and then to lead one of the largest banks in America, uh, African American banks in America, and lived in a mansion. Oh, okay, <laughs> you know, yeah. so it's like you have these cross at the same time. She's in the city of Richmond, where you have people of both races, subsequently lower in income than she is. Mm. Um, so you really see class become a real marker and it crosses lines and it goes how far up can you go but also to women african-american women and white women because they are teachers and because they are um, state employees when they're working in the public schools we also see now the expansion of women rights across the board and a lot of them are socially economic they choose not to get married because <laughs> if you get married you have to quit school i uh, get <laughs> quit teaching um but a lot of them are your activists they're the ones fighting for women, uh, women's suffrage they're the ones fighting for the progressive era reforms they're doing that civic duty that we always think about 
at the uh, turn of the 19th century, and they all started out most of the part as teachers in mm. those public schools. So, and when you look at the state of dresses, they dress better because they have more money. Yeah. <laughs> They're like, oh, that's silk that <laughs> you have on and not just cotton. So, yeah, you can see it. Yeah, it's so it's so funny. It's such it's such a different picture than I think. And again, you know, being from the Northeast, you can relate where you have this idea of the Northeast being consistently this economically, uh, you know, this economically and technologically progressive enclave. And then the South always playing catch up sort of. But it seems to me like in this case, the South was kind of leading the charge in a lot of ways. Yeah, and this is the one era I would really say, especially with public schools, the South is leading. Yeah. It is definitely leading here, and especially how it's inclusive in nature in terms of let's, it's that starting from new, let's create this, because everything had to be built from the ground up. Mm-hmm. Um, so what didn't work in those areas was maybe we should have these type of taxes, not this type. Maybe we should have this type of education model built in and not mm-hmm. this. And you can see that, and you can also see who's driving the conversation. It's a biracial, um, inclusive um, committee at the constitutional level, so where you have former enslaved people next to those who own plant, uh, used to own plantations, mm-hmm. next to people who came from the north who are now on the ground building up the reconstructed south, and they're all working together for the future of their state and the region. Yeah, and there's very little times in history that we have that kind of cross collaboration and breadth of people in a room at one time. But their goal was the same. Yeah, let's build a state. Let's go back and officially be able to join back to the United States from um, from our Reconstruction um, military district, and let's move forward. It's one of the more hopeful periods. And I've seen in American history, in spite of everything else that's going on, the violence that's there uh, with the Ku Klux Klan, that's still going on. Mm-hmm. But in terms of schools, this becomes this non-negotiable of what the war meant, mm-hmm. what the society would mean. If they couldn't agree on anything else, they could all agree on education and public yeah. schools. Yeah. And so mm-hmm. now we've got this nice, bright moment Mm-hmm. And now I'm probably going to smash it to bits because so there, <laughs> yeah. something changes at some point in, in history. It doesn't stay great forever, correct? Yes. And one of the things that changes is um, when Southern states come back to the United States um, and are joining, they're back in the Union full rights. Mm-hmm. One of the problems of education that comes up a lot that really gets exasperated, it's expensive. Mm-hmm. How are you going to fund a statewide system? Tax burdens for people who never had to pay these taxes before. And amidst all of this, there are some economic recessions and depressions going on with Mm -hmm. the panic of 1873. So across the nation, people are hurting. But in the South, their economy starts to hurt as well. So people start thinking about, okay, we have this new service. How are we going to continue to pay for this? Mm-hmm. And so those funding, um, this is where the challenges of funding become an issue. And at one point, um, you start seeing Southern school districts appeal to Congress in a bill that was led by a New Hampshire senator, Henry Bill, uh, Blair. Mm-hmm. Um, he's a 
he proposes what this $77 million in then money based on rates of illiteracy to have a federal system of public schools to help people address the funding crisis because mm-hmm. schools are expensive. That fails. And when that fails, states are like, what other options can we do? And one of those options is the, um, what we think about with Booker T. Washington. But the funding crisis, funding was the main issue. And while they could succeed over time, the money invested, people started questioning the how much can we give Mm, mm. and how much of our tax burden (laughs) yeah yeah they never closed the schools the thing is they never closed the schools they never shut down districts but they're like we can't sustain this so this is where that model of having three months as a minimum or Mm -hmm. six months Mm -hmm. districts start to look at that we can still give and be adherent to our constitution if we provide six months of school or three months or four months. Yeah. And, and so, th- so you start seeing those, those kind of liberations. I'm just kind of listening to you thinking about this and thinking about the state of education today. And it seems like what you have is you have this issue of funding starting to dry up, but the constitution mm-hmm. is obligating certain requirements. And so what the schools start to think about is how do we fulfill those requirements, but still stay within our budgetary restrictions? So how do we kind of do the minimum required amount, so to speak? Um, not, is, that, is that fair or am I? That is really fair. fair. Yeah. And the other issue is where race comes in. Mm-hmm. Um, African-Americans use the public schools at a higher rate than most white Southerners did. Mm-hmm. So because they are reaping the economic, political, and social benefits, you start to see um, when states take over, and uh, first with the ballot, okay, African-Americans, should they be school board members? Because school board members choose who gets to be hired and or fired from positions, which are state employees. Who, what buildings get the resources for repair and the like? So they have a lot of power. Mm-hmm. Do African Americans should they be able to make these choices? So you start seeing the answer is increasingly no. The other is when you have limited funding. Well, whose schools, whose children matter more? Mm-hmm. <laughs> and if you have school districts that are no longer racially balanced or concerned, and then you have this funding crisis and pushing out. Um, you will see those funding, let's have more money going to these white schools and not black schools. Mm-hmm. But when, in mid, all of that, though, which is the conundrum, and it won't happen until where Jim Crow occurs, teacher salaries remain the same. Okay. <laughs> it's based on, do you have a degree? What's your degree? You have certain measures <laughs> of how you're getting paid. So, and that's where you're, education. So black teachers are still being employed. They are still having access to the middle class. You see African-American children going more to those uh, state-funded normal school programs because they still see that as a way out. Mm-hmm. And then coming back and teaching in their communities. And that communal support of um, the, do- um, the double tax and African-Americans and paying in kind, you'll have churches step up mm-hmm. and philanthropies fill in those voids. So the schools never close, but 
government structure start to close down this gap between black and white and really force a racial divide even more so into the schools that existed only in the terms of in the classroom spaces because white children and black children did not educate in the same spaces, Mm -hmm. but they received equitable funding and support. Then it becomes, okay, not only are they not being in the same school, uh, when you get to Plessy versus Ferguson, separate but equals okay. Mm-hmm. But that equal never plays out. Yeah. Yeah. So this is now we're starting to return to normal here, it sounds like, or to, to the to the Yeah. Um, yeah. If I'm if I'm kind of summing all this up then, it sounds like there is this period when there are these large centralized sources of funding that come in. And during that period, things are generally humming along nicely. It's mm-hmm. when the, that source of funding starts to dry up and you start to rely more on local funding that these inequities start to arise. In the, yeah. Is that fair? Is that right? Or? That, is, that is fair. And also, yeah. too, the fear of the unknown and the other. Mm-hmm. Um, so, um, and playing up of racial fears in this time period, um, where at the same time this is all going on, this is where we see the removal of the ballot from African Americans, starting mm-hmm. with Mississippi in 1890. Mm-hmm. So it's between 1890 with that first constitution to like the early 20th century with the last of the states doing this, that you start seeing the removal of black political voice with let's affect the schools mm-hmm. <laughs> and, and it spreads out. It's one of those ripple effects. And then you also at the same time, you have the rise of lynching too. Mm. So it's all occurring around the same moment. And it's kind of like, let's suppress this moment of expansion, this moment of rebirth, this moment of where public schools starting from the ground up and redoing what starting anew from what wasn't there before. Mm-hmm. closes yeah and yeah. so it's one of those conundrums on there but one of the things i find even in that public schools never shut down and is there a reversal of those those income gains you saw in the beginning of reconstruction or does that plateau like what happens there it kind of plateaus but mm-hmm. one of the areas where you see decline will be in the salaries of teachers Okay. And um, and so in somewhere like a South Carolina, where a teacher of the same educational background and teaching strategy, a white teacher will get about fifteen hundred dollars a month. A black teacher will only get three fifty. Okay. A month. Yeah. So you start, and it's really during Jim Crow that you see it's so stark. Even my students were like, "Well, what happened?" I'm like, "I know." Yeah. <laughs> Inequality had to be brought into the system. It was not intentionally built that way, but when it comes, you will know the difference. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And do you feel? Do you feel like you know? If we look at the Reconstruction era as a whole, do you mm-hmm. feel like this ultimate desire to build in these racial inequities? Do you feel like it was an issue where maybe it was suppressed during the initial part of the Reconstruction, or was it more the economic pressures that started to trigger this and maybe make people decide, you know, who gets cut, who doesn't? I think it's the economic pressures because what I find that's interesting is who benefits and are using the schools right away were those who were denied public schools from the beginning. Mm -hmm. And those same opportunities for employment as teachers, you start seeing for white women as well. 
And even former plantation owners operate schools for African-American children on their properties because it is income. And they become a part of the system. Like, okay, this is a part of the war's end. (laughs) And so it's those economic benefits that come from this new social service, um, social net that comes out with public schools that you see more people becoming on board. Mm -hmm. And starting with those who were denied outright from the beginning, they see the benefits of it. And then when the economic pressures come in and then a reassertion what power means, political power means, in shaping the future of the region, then you really see that imposition that was um, that we come to think about now. And so I guess if we're, if we're looking at the state of affairs today, U.S. has what I was surprised to find one of the highest rates of per pupil spending in the world. Uh, mm-hmm. But I would challenge that number with the idea that that per pupil spending is equal. Because, because yeah. I, I you, it, you don't have to be a a, 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 a rocket scientist to know that wealthier communities are going to have a higher instance of per pupil spending than less wealthy communities. And that is one of the issues with like then the wealth because of the South economically the economy has collapsed the Confederacy the money's worthless so mm-hmm. that was kind of there's kind of like a level playing field. On that point, but today that model will not work uh, because wealthier districts, especially Metro um, Boston West, <laughs> I'm thinking Wellesley as well, yeah, and versus Brockton and things, we all have similar tax bases. <laughs> yep, yep. That will definitely, and I think this is where the, uh, there are some ways to do some leveling mm-hmm. and how do you do that, and that will take a stronger state system. But the other issue I would think is too is tax dollars being used for non-public schools. So charter schools that have been proven not as successful, but also vouchers. Mm -hmm. That model will increase some of the inequity of funding by removing necessary monies because public schools remain expensive. You Mm -hmm. know that. But if you remove funding and put it elsewhere, it's going to have even more adverse effects on the schools that need every single dollar. And we saw, and this is where I think seeing what happened in the aftermath of reconstruction can provide lessons for the present in real clear ways. Yeah. Yeah. And do you think then, because, because the impression I'm getting here is that when we look at the state of affairs today, the, the number one way we could positively affect this is to remove that localized source of funding, or I should say to, to, to decrease the percentage of burden that falls on an individual town or an individual city and really increase the responsibility of either the state or the federal level. And does that, is that, is that what you're saying or did I, did I misunderstand? Well, I think it will vary. So mm-hmm. <laughs> I think it's going to be, this is where I don't think it's a one size fit all, but I think for some districts, they're going to need more yeah. from either um, a state or uh, also the federal, if possibly, or even outside philanthropist. Um, yeah. And what mm-hmm. was used in that, um, in the reconstruction era, because not all, some districts receive more outside funding than others. And others, the local base could afford it that they didn't need the yeah. other. So it's, this is where 
how much would the bureaucracy, can they recognize that system? Yeah. <laughs> and, <laughs> that's the challenge. And I don't think I have the answer for that. But one thing I do know, it's not just the funding. I think this a common understanding by all individuals that public schools are necessary. Mm-hmm. They deserve to be fully resourced and that they need teachers who are both qualified but care about the their individuals that they're educated. And they have responsible political structures, whether it's at a school board level, administrative level, that will help address the needs of those communities. Because at the end, education is still remains a part of the social economic mobility throughout. Now, I don't want to gloss over all the bad stuff that happened at the end as the Jim Crow era began, but there's something really cool and interesting I want to point out here, which is people went from literally making no income as slaves to having middle-class lifestyles within a couple decades of emancipation. And I don't think there's anything that speaks louder to the transformative power of education than that. Now, the second part of that, of course, is the role economics plays in us actually following through on doing the right thing. And you'll find that when people are insecure or they feel threatened in this country, we all tend to revert to tribalism. And very often, unfortunately, that's racial in tone. But if we can lift people from slavery to the middle class with a proper educational base, there's nothing saying we can't do the same right now for people who maybe are feeling a little insecure economically, maybe getting a little tribal as we've seen. So how much is that going to take? Well, I'm happy that I asked that question because next week I have Carabo Jackson from Northwestern University to join me and discuss the impact $1 of funding has on the lifetime income of a child in an underfunded school district. You will not want to miss this one, I guarantee. As always, theme music, welcome back, Fellertack. Production done by the big Gino Jason Putney. All else done by moi, Dan Sally. Until the next, folks. 